Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Conversations on Strategy welcomes Dr. Tor Buchwald, author of Russian Special Operations Forces in Crimea and Donbass, featured in Parameters 2016 Summer Issue. Buchwald is a Senior Research Fellow at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment. He's a specialist on Russia and Ukraine, particularly in the areas of defense and security policy. Thank you so much for joining me, Tor. I'm really glad you're here. We're here to talk about your 2016 article, which opens with this sentence. This article investigates the role Special Operations Forces, SOF, have fulfilled in Russian warfare against Ukraine, both in Crimea and in Donbass. Please give us some background. Russian Special Operations Forces in Ukraine in the past. What do we need to understand here? So what we need to understand in terms of the role these forces have played in Russian policy towards Ukraine is that they played a major, maybe the most important role in the annexation of Crimea. And then secondly, they played an important but not so important role in the warfare in Donbass. There may have been Russian special operations forces in Ukraine also prior to the events of 2014, but I think it makes sense to start with the annexation of Crimea because these forces played such an important role there. And that was first of all in terms of the so-called SSO, which in Russian stands for Seal Specialnik Apparatsi. This is a relatively new Russian special operations force that was formally established in 2013, but had been built up for a number of years before that. So what you should know is that in Soviet times, Special operations forces tended to be more like what in the West would be called light elite infantry. So the famous Spetsnaz forces that we heard so much about were more like the U.S. Rangers than the U.S. special operations forces like Delta and the SEALs and so on. But this new force, SSO, was particularly built on the example or was supposed to be the Russian Delta Force. Specifically, the Russian military referred to Delta when they talked about SSO. And in Crimea, this SSO force, they started the annexation by taking over the buildings of the parliament and the government in Crimea. And then they occupied those buildings for 24 hours. Basically, it seems to me from the sources I've seen, to check out what the Ukrainians would do at that time. Would they try to stop the annexation or would they not? And the Ukrainians for a number of reasons did nothing or very little. And that became then the first step in the annexation of the whole peninsula. And the SSO continued to play a big role here in cooperation with Spetsnaz GRU, which is the Special Operations Forces of Russian Military Intelligence. These are the Rangers forces I talked about before that then worked in tandem with the SSO to take over most of the Ukrainian military infrastructure on that peninsula. So this operation taking place on 27th of February 2014 is Today, one of the most important operations that Russian Special Operations Forces have ever done. And President Putin even named the 27th of February as the Day of Special Operations Forces in Russia for the years to come. That's a relatively long answer on the role they played in the annexation of Crimea. Then later, Special Operations Forces also played a significant role 
in the warfare in Donbass. So the warfare in Donbass from 2014 and onwards was partly a local initiative, but also very much a Russian government and Russian military initiative. In the warfare in Donbass that took place uh, up until the current war, Special Operations Forces did basically two things. They trained and fought together with the local forces. That's the one thing. And then they also had a more special task. The empirical data for this is a little bit uncertain, but it seems that the Special Operations Forces of the GRU also had as their job to liquidate commanders of the different units of anti-Kiev opposition that the Russians did not like anymore. So in the beginning, there were a lot of local commanders in Donbass that were kind of marionettes for the Russians, but then gradually these commanders became more and more dissatisfied with the line coming from Moscow, and Russia just needed to get rid of them and put in other commanders of the rebellion. And that seems also to have been the job of the Spetsnaz GRU. So that's broadly what they did both in Crimea and later in Donbass. How might Russian special forces be playing a role in what's happening in Ukraine now? Yeah, so it's early to say. I mean, the, the empirical data we have so far are very scattered, scarce, and you don't know really what to believe. Russia has closed down everything that consisted of independent reporting, and Ukraine has much more of that, but at the same time, Ukraine is a party to the conflict, so you can't really trust those sources either. So <laughs> the first answer will be that we don't know much, but we know a couple of things. So, for example, we do know that the initial Russian aggression against Ukraine was supposed to happen very fast and with little use of kinetic force, and that Russia expected Ukraine to fall basically in just a matter of days. And the most important operation in all of this was the plan to take the airfield Hostomel north of Kiev and bring in Russian airborne forces to that airfield and then use that airfield as a springboard to go into the very center of Kiev and capture or even take out the political leadership of the country. And this was done by the airborne forces or this was attempted by the airborne forces and especially with the airborne forces own 45th Spetsnaz or Special Operations Forces Brigade. So what they tried to do in Hostomel was to bring in Spetsnaz from the 45th Brigade with helicopters to the airfield, take control of the airfield. Then the rest of the airborne forces or other parts of the airborne forces would follow on and land bigger troops with planes on the airfield. And then they would take Kiev from there. And it's quite interesting. I found an article from one of the pro-government newspapers in Russia that actually described the whole operation and presented it as a victory. So obviously that article had been written before the actually before the operation took place, assuming that everything would be okay. But then it wasn't because the Spetsnaz that took the airfield, they lost the airfield and then the airborne forces couldn't land. And from there on, everything seems to have gone a bit south for the Russians. So that's an important part of Special Operations Forces use in this war. We know that they tried something similar also with other airports. And it should also mention that this attempt to take Kiev through the airport at Hostomel, that operation is very similar to, for example, how the Soviet Union took over control of Prague in Czechoslovakia back in 1968, and also somewhat similar to what the Russians did in Pristina and Kosovo in 1999. But I think apart from that operation, I think the Spetsnaz in this war have basically been working in what in Ukrainian is called DRGs, that's 
diversionary and intelligence gathering groups. So they dressed in civilian clothes and entered the different Ukrainian cities to do sabotage missions there and to uh, bring intelligence back to the main forces. I think that's more or less what we know about the role of Russian Special Operations Forces in this war at the moment. You made several points at the end of your article. There's two of them that I was hoping we could talk about today. The first one is that we don't want Russia to export its soft model to other countries. What are your thoughts on that? I wouldn't say that Russia has done this a lot. And actually, the, the soft model to some extent is, at least in the beginning, especially with the SSO, they tried to imitate your model. But they did help Ethiopia establish Special Operations Forces in 2002-2003. That was probably more of a somewhat commercial endeavor. Basically, the Ethiopians were ready to pay for this, and that was money that the Russians could use. But I think it's a more somber and uh, problematic example is the cooperation between this SSO, the Steel Spezialnikopadelsi, this Russian Delta Force, and the Tiger Division of Assad in Syria. Again, it's hard to get details, but it does seem like the SSO has had a special responsibility for training and for also fighting with Assad's Tiger Division in Syria. And that Tiger Division seems to have been one of the most brutal of the Assad forces in that war. So I think this is something really to look into if it's possible to find more data on that. And I'm also thinking here in this respect that one thing is that Russia is using special operations forces to train forces like the Assad's Tiger Division, but the, you may also have the effect here that the extreme brutality that we have seen in the civil war in Syria, especially with this Tiger Division, may also have a kind of a influence back on the Russians. I wouldn't be surprised if Russian special operations forces, as a result of what they have done in Syria, come back home let's say, more brutal and less disciplined than when they left. They, I mean, we don't know this, for sure, of course, but it is imaginable that that will happen. But I think those are the two kind of main examples. The Ethiopia mission, which was more commercial, and then the Syria mission, which has been much more important and also sinister in a way. I'd like to bring up another point here. Unless there's a regime change, Russia's relationships with many countries look like they'll be challenging for years to come. What are your thoughts on this? depends on whether we have a regime change in Russia or not. But even if we have a regime change in Russia, it doesn't necessarily lead to Russia that is more easy to deal with than the one we have at present. So I am fearing a very difficult period for both the West and many other countries in how to deal with Russia. This is especially in terms of willingness to challenge both the West and to challenge other countries, which is obviously very strong at the moment. and. I think we're going into a different world than the one we had before the 24th of February this year. But another side of this is that they are not doing a good job in Ukraine. They are losing a lot of military capability. They may continue to lose a lot of military capability, as of course, then conventional military capability, simply because if they continue the war and if the Ukrainians continue to fight as well as they have done so far, and we continue to provide them with weapons, we might actually grind down the Russian military capability to a significant degree. And also, if the sanctions continue after this war is over, it's going to be difficult for Russia to have the money to rebuild that military capability fastly. So. In terms of your question, I think that we should be very concerned on the political side in terms of Russian willingness to challenge the West. It will be very difficult for us. On the other side, the 
war in Ukraine may actually make Russia somewhat of a weaker military power than it used to be before the war in Ukraine started. I appreciate your time and your thoughtful analysis on this topic. Thanks, Tor. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Conversations on Strategy and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform.